This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 18th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Tobacco in cigarette form is the most deadly consumer product ever created. Anti-smoking campaigners have spent decades trying to get people to quit and kids to not start. So what about e-cigarettes and vaping nicotine? Should they be given the same treatment? Jacob Greer is author of The Rediscovery of Tobacco, Smoking, Vaping, and the Creative Destruction of the Cigarette. We recorded a live Cato Daily podcast in Cato's Hayek Auditorium this week. The two sides of this are, one, cigarettes look really cool <laughs> to this day, uh, and they will kill you dead. So uh, how has, at least in the United States, handled those two facts uh, in, let's say, the 20th century? Well, we started by only knowing the first part, <laughs> which is that they made people look cool. Um, and if you look, say, just prior to the 20th century, Americans were using a lot of tobacco, but they weren't smoking cigarettes. They were chewing tobacco, they were smoking pipes, they were smoking cigars, uh, they might be hand-rolling their own little cigarettes. Uh, but the cigarette, as we know it today, is still a very niche product. Uh, and there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, one was the type of tobacco used. Uh, it wasn't until the 1850s when you were able to flu-cure tobacco and kind of lower the pH that for the first time you had tobacco that actually felt good to inhale deeply into your lungs. Uh, and then the second was economic inventions of rolling machines. So one of the main reasons people didn't smoke cigarettes before, no matter how cool they looked, was it was not practical to have someone hand-rolling these for you, packaging them up, and sending them to whatever store you buy it from. Uh, so by the beginning of the 20th century, both those things had changed. Now suddenly you had an extremely addictive product that you could inhale directly, and you had a way of making it very, very cheaply. And so this set off this cascade of events. And about what time was this? Uh, the machine started in 1880. Uh, but around 1900 is when you, you start seeing this take off. Uh, it wasn't until later, uh, really World War I is what cemented it. All right. So, so uh, there's an anecdote in your book. Uh, physician and researcher Alex Oxner uh, was called into, I guess, his boss's office to take a look at a lung cancer autopsy, and why was that? Yeah, this was around 1919. He was a medical student, uh, and he was brought in to see the autopsy for lung cancer because he was told that this case is so rare, you may never encounter it again in your career. Uh, and as it turned out, obviously, this was the opposite happened. Uh, it became an epidemic. Uh, 1914 was the first year uh, that the United States tracked lung cancer deaths. They recorded uh, 400 nationwide. Uh, by 1940, that risen to 8,000 deaths. Uh, and lung cancer was increasing at five times the rate of all other cancers. And so that created this question as to why. Uh, and in hindsight, it's very obvious uh, what, it, what the answer is. We all know cigarettes were the cause. Uh, but at the time, it was mysterious because prior to that time, uh, people were smoking, but they weren't smoking cigarettes. And so lung cancer wasn't appearing. And so people had all other examples like industrialization, tarring the roads, moving to cities. Uh, and it took really good scientific work to establish the fact that actually it's these cigarettes and the fact that everybody's inhaling them over and over and over again throughout the day uh, that's causing this epidemic. So uh, later in the 20th century, as the, as the public sort of becomes aware that cigarettes will kill you dead, stupid, uh, and the, uh, just the, the pervasive health effects that are not, not just cancer, all sorts of uh, illnesses are, are tied to cigarettes. When did the public sector decide that it is appropriate to be involved and we need to try to at least tell people that uh, cigarettes are bad? 
Well, they tried and failed during the temperance era. Uh, so there was actually a huge anti-cigarette movement that resulted in cigarettes being banned in several states in the early 1900s. And then that all, all got wiped out by World War I, completely changed pre- people's perceptions of smoking. Uh, but then in the English-speaking world, 1950 was the big year. Uh, there were actually some German papers before that, but in terms of English scientists and American scientists doing the research and really establishing this, 1950 was kind of the watershed year. Uh, around that same time, within a couple years, Reader's Digest put out a report uh, which also helped publicize the fact that smoking was dangerous. Uh, and then 1964, you had the landmark Surgeon General's report that establishing this uh, very publicly. Uh, although, as people realized soon after, tobacco stocks went right back up uh, within a year wow. or so later, uh, because simply knowing that smoking was dangerous wasn't enough to completely stop people from doing it. And so the first Surgeon General's report is the mid-60s. Yeah. Uh, what, was the, what was the thrust of that? Uh, it was basically establishing very firmly that all this research that had been done for the past two decades, establishing cigarette smoking as a cause of lung cancer, uh, was no longer deniable by any honest person. Okay. And and it seems that uh, cigarettes have always been, at least in my, within my lifetime, have always been a little bit taboo, a little bit bad, <laughs> but bad in a cool way. Very stylish. Very stylish. And, uh, you know, I started smoking when I was 17 years old. Uh, not surprisingly, my girlfriend already smoked. And uh, when we got serious, I started smoking. And um, it wasn't until I discovered vaping products in 2012 or 2013 that I haven't had a cigarette since then. And uh, your view, on, my, my view is I'm never going to have another cigarette. Right. Um, your view is... Like the Onion article about the F, uh, the FDA, eh, cigarette here and there is probably not going to kill you. Yeah, I'm a bit of an outlier in, in terms of people who talk about vaping or harm reduction. Uh, most people who take up this issue are either like yourself, former smokers who have become vapers and who are now very passionate about having this option, or they're straightforward uh, people in public health or doctors who, who are embracing this, which, as we'll talk about, not everybody does. Sure, sure. Uh, but yeah, I am a bit of an outlier in that I enjoy tobacco, and I'm very open about it, and I want to continue using it. But I will specify, I basically never smoke cigarettes. Uh, I'm, I'm an outlier. I didn't start using tobacco. Uh, I, I don't even like the phrase using, but smoking, uh, until I was in my mid-20s. And I started with cigars and have pretty much stayed with cigars. So for me, I want to have that option there, and I really enjoy it. But it's not a daily, weekly, or sometimes even monthly thing. It's a very occasional thing uh, that, for reasons I talk about in the book, I think is worth defending. Okay, so uh, when would you say that there became an ideological component to opposition to cigarettes and tobacco more broadly? In the modern sense, I think 70s and 80s is when this anti-smoking movement really starts to coalesce. If you want to go back further, you could say King James in the 1600s. Okay. (laughs) There's always been some element of that. Uh, But yeah, starting in the 70s, you you started really having this identity of non-smokers and an anti-smoking movement, uh, which had three goals, basically, to end smoking, uh, to end the disease and illness caused by smoking, and to destroy the tobacco companies themselves, Uh, which part of why vaping is so controversial now is it sort of undoes the unity of those goals, uh, because tobacco companies might stay around, but we end up eliminating a lot of the harm. 
but we, and we also have people indulging in a nicotine pleasurable behavior that some okay. people find objectionable. So in, in 2009, the, the Tobacco Control Act uh, passed, and what, what did that do? How did that change the relationship between the public, essentially, and tobacco? I think it was one of the, the big steps that changed the strategies that tobacco companies were using. Uh, because the anti-smoking movement had long, had long wanted the FDA to regulate tobacco for pretty obvious reasons. Uh, but what happened that really shifted things was Philip Morris got on board as well. And so part of the reason that passed is Philip Morris decided to shift from completely opposing government regulation to establishing regulations that they knew they could uh, game the system with and succeed at where their competitors couldn't. So you created barriers to entry. And so what this did uh, was it, it banned a lot of minor flavors. It allowed menthol to stay on the market. Uh, and it made it so that any new tobacco product coming on would have to go through an FDA approval process, uh, which is extremely costly and bureaucratic. And it took years before anyone could even get through. Uh, so it basically locked in the market share from Marlboro and other large cigarette brands and made it impossible for others to compete. Okay, and uh, I'm going to pause here for a moment yeah. and say that if, uh, if you have any questions for Jacob Greer on his book, The Rediscovery of Tobacco, you can go ahead and fire those off on Twitter and use the hashtag Cato Podcast Live, and uh, we'll try to get to them uh, in the next few minutes here. So uh, like I said, I discovered vaping in 2013 uh, and haven't had a cigarette since, and I'm very happy about that. Uh, I know a lot of people uh, are able to smoke only occasionally and not make it a habit. Uh, you seem to be one of those dastardly people who's able to do that. <laughs> um, but vaping has been, uh, and I think it is for a lot of people, sort of a godsend in a way if you're uh, weak-willed like me and can't resist the, the uh, urge to have nicotine in your system. Um, when did vaping first become, I guess, when, when was it created and, and how, does it, how does it work? Uh, so the first commercial device seems about 2003, 2004 in China. A pharmacist actually named Han Lik uh, who saw his father die of lung cancer. And so he wanted to create a better way of consuming nicotine that would have prevented that. Uh, so it came out from the very beginning as a way to help smokers quit and to use something different that would be less harmful. Uh, and this idea has been around for a while. It goes back to uh, Michael Russell, who is a researcher and harm reduction advocate, uh, who had the insight that people smoke for the nicotine, but they die from the tar. So if there's some way that we could separate the nicotine, which uh, for a lot of smokers is what they want, uh, from all these other harmful constituents, then people could continue consuming it and you would reduce all these harms that are causing people to die from smoking. Uh, turns out that's really hard to do in practice. Uh, the tobacco companies tried over the years various measures, various products to make a safer cigarette, uh, which either turned out to not actually do much for you, such as the filter tip, which filter tip cigarette is still highly lethal, or they tried to create uh, heat, not burn products, uh, which just failed spectacularly in the market test because nobody liked them. So, so vaping is one of the first products that's come around where, like you said, someone who smokes and either can't or doesn't want to quit for whatever reason can find a product that is a lot more satisfying or as satisfying or close to satisfying as a cigarette uh, but not doing the same level of harm because it's delivering nicotine in a glycol solution that you inhale as opposed to the smoke. So uh, to bridge the gap here between vaping and the ideological opposition to tobacco, one might be forgiven for thinking that a lot of these ideological opponents of tobacco would look upon vaping as this enormous innovation 
that is, has the potential to dramatically reduce the harm that is associated with analog smoking. <laughs> and uh, that is not, that it's fundamentally not what has occurred. No, not at all. And uh, yes, you would be forgiven for thinking that this is strange. Um, and we've seen the same thing in Scandinavia too, where they have products called snus, which is kind of oral tobacco, uh, which has helped Sweden achieve some of the lowest rates of smoking in Europe, uh, and yet it's banned completely elsewhere within the continent. And there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one, I think, is, I think to anybody alive today, if you think of smoking, you think of nicotine, you think of cigarettes, this is all one thing. They're all synonymous with each other. Uh, you know, for our lifetime, if we thought of tobacco, we thought of cigarettes. And so one thing I talk about in the book is if you go back a century, this was not the case. Prior to the rise of the manufactured cigarette, tobacco had lots of different forms. Uh, and so you could, it was easier to think about different ways of consuming tobacco and nicotine. Uh, so one is that people are just in this mindset and people who have come up in tobacco control for their entire careers, they only think about cigarettes. And if that's all you see, you're going to be very skeptical of nicotine in any form. Uh, the second reason which gets brought up is that uh, the way e-cigarettes were developed, it was not governments and it was not pharmaceutical companies in the driver's seat. It was really small companies and even individuals kind of hacking together uh, their own devices. So a lot of the early e-cigarettes, uh, they were getting away from the idea of it having to look like a cigarette, which limited the power of the batteries and limited what could go into it. Uh, and so people were harvesting batteries from laser pointers and, and other tools and creating their own way of creating an e-cigarette that was actually more satisfying and delivered nicotine in a better way. Uh, and that's where you get the juice box. Yeah, yeah, we, exactly. <laughs> the little straw attached to what looks like something that would charge your phone in a pinch. Right, and all the different flavors and the people who like big clouds versus small clouds. Uh, but none of this was, came through this whole regulatory process that was set up uh, in any country uh, with the idea of creating a smoking cessation medicine. See, so, you know, people don't mind nicotine in a gum or a patch or even an inhaler, uh, but because people took up vaping because they like it and because it's fun, uh, there's a lot of skepticism attached so, to it. I will push back a little bit on that only okay. because I'm not confident that I'm, you can explain why it's wrong to be skeptical of that, but why is something that looks like smoking so virulently opposed on the basis of someone enjoying it? Hard to say. One factor that comes up a lot is they, they fear that this would renormalize smoking. So there's a lot of fear that we were so close to getting rid of smoking forever, and then people started vaping, and people started seeing people vaping, and then it's a short step from vaping to smoking, uh, which I think is not an illegitimate concern, but it's one that hasn't played out in the real world. I think we see a lot more of a substitution effect where people like yourself who were smokers... Right are now not smokers at all and are vaping instead. Uh, and we're not seeing uh, kids move from vaping to smoking, which I think would be the bigger fear. And that is, the, that is a big fear. So what, is the, what, is, what do we know about the data so far on young people? We've seen this huge spike, I know, of young people vaping. Uh, it seems that young people are smart enough, generally, to know that I probably shouldn't start smoking cigarettes. But this vaping seems to be a far safer way to do it. Uh, so what, what are the general numbers? So it is true that teenagers are definitely trying vaping. Uh, one way that there's a lot of misleading info that's out there is they mostly talk about experimental use. So any person who has tried an e-cigarette in the past 30 days, uh, that number has gone up quite considerably. The number of teens who are frequently vaping is actually much smaller. 
but that number uh, will generally not be released at the same time when the new figures come out. So the, the figures are put out in a way that maximizes the idea that there's an epidemic of teen vaping. So uh, because you can get a separate headline for each of those things and they don't have to be reconciled in a news story. Right. And then the other thing that's come up is the new data for this year came out and it's the lowest rate of youth smoking in history. It fell from a little over 8% to under 6% in just one year. And the FDA released this data at the same time, but it had a multi-paragraph press release that was all about the epidemic of youth vaping and didn't even mention the fact that the country had achieved the lowest rate of youth smoking ever. So, so people tend to highlight the bad and uh, obscure the good. So uh, there have been what I've read in, the, in uh, news reports as vaping-related deaths. And of course, initially I was skeptical because there are millions of people who use these products uh, every day and have for years, like myself, and have suffered no detectable uh, health, but, uh, poor health effects. Uh, and yet we saw hundreds of people made sick. I think two dozen people have died. Um, and it has struck me as a little bit of, uh, well, journalistic malpractice to uh, not try to separate out very clearly what it is that we're talking about. Now, the early reports, I guess, can be forgiven, but the more we know about it now, the more we know going to a convenience store and buying some sort of uh, e-cigarette product is, by and large, not in any way responsible for uh, these illnesses and deaths. Right. And as you can imagine, publishing this book this summer, I was watching this story very closely because I would have had to make some major revisions if <laughs> this had turned out to be the case. Uh, but yes, it has. I was able to add an addendum to the book uh, saying that this looks to be much more associated with THC cartridges, mostly on the black market, and that in the end, this will probably tell us more about our drug laws than it will about vaping. But uh, in the popular reporting, uh, they always call these vaping or they call it e-cigarettes, uh, which are not really terms that people associate with marijuana use. We reached out to Jewel for comment. They did not <laughs> respond. Right. So, yeah, uh, I think it was a combination of people being afraid of vaping to begin with. And also, uh, you've had a lot of people in the anti-smoking movement or in government who have long wanted a reason to ban vaping but haven't had it yet. And so when this danger arises, as they say, you don't let a crisis go to waste, you take advantage of it. And you use the ambiguity to pass the laws that you've been wanting to pass for a long time. And it's weird because uh, if you accept the notion of uh, e-cigarettes as a harm reduction tool, and if you accept the notion that the public health community has for a very long time wanted to reduce uh, cigarette smoking, to then obscure data about what essentially is a harm reduction uh, innovation uh, as it relates to, back to tobacco, uh, I just wonder what a lot of these people are really after if it's, it doesn't appear to be, at least in this case, public health. Yeah, and there's two tragic effects of this. One, even before this crisis, uh, people were already misinformed about e-cigarettes. If you looked at polling, uh, there were still tons of people in the U.S. who believe e-cigarettes are as dangerous or more dangerous than conventional cigarettes. Now that's gotten even worse from polling that we've seen since these stories came out. And then the other problem is people don't know what the true cause is. So if they are someone who might be buying a black market marijuana product or even a legal marijuana product, uh, they don't know that that's what they should be looking out for. And I've had this experience living in Portland, Oregon, which you would think would have an informed consumer base of marijuana users. 
And I talk to people all the time who know I, I write about this, who think that e-cigarettes of the type we think of uh, for nicotine vaping are the cause, and who continue using uh, marijuana vapor devices without even knowing that it's part of the issue. So yeah, you're, you're misinforming people on two fronts. Uh, one, preventing people from going to the safer product, and two, potentially not warning people about the product that is behind these. Uh, we have a question here from our uh, Twitter, and you can all tweet as well, but we'll get to <laughs> real questions from our corporeal uh, audience uh, shortly. How big is the vaping economy in the U.S., and uh, what percentage, presumably, of vaping products do, is represented by the tobacco companies, big tobacco uh, so I don't know the size of, in a revenue sense. I do know that estimates for number of vapors in the U.S., the most recent numbers I've seen are around 13 million. Uh, you have about 34 million people who smoke cigarettes. So even from a pure harm reduction standpoint, you've got uh, a lot of potential there to transition these people who are smoking into vaping. So we'd want to see that grow if that's the goal. Um, it's hard to get accurate numbers on the big, versus, big tobacco versus uh, smaller companies, because the numbers that get reported uh, tend to be through convenience store tracking. So in the convenience store market, companies like Juul and Views, uh, who are owned or partially owned by tobacco companies, do make up a big share of the market, because those are designed to be pulled off the shelf, ready to go. Uh, it's much harder to track things like the independent vape stores, uh, where you would you know, customize your flavor, your battery pack, you know, find the thing that really specifically works for you. Uh, that is almost all very small scale. And you would imagine that companies uh, that own at least a, a big chunk of Juul or Views, which is entirely owned by a tobacco company, if I understand correctly. I think that's Reynolds. I may be uh, wrong. But, it, but yeah. uh, you would imagine that those tobacco companies, uh, if they haven't already, will start warning us about these dangerous fly-by-night vape shops that are going to sell you a dangerous product. Yeah, and this is, there's so many trade-offs to be made in the vaping world. Uh, and so a product like Juul, uh, I think, you know, they, they crack the code in somewhat in making a very easy-to-use vapor device. But at the same time, because it's so easy to use, it also drove the uptick in youth, youth use. Uh, and so you, if you look at the regulations that are coming down though, through the FDA, those small vape stores that it sounds like maybe you went to and that a lot of uh, vapor people went to to begin with, those are the ones who are going to get wiped out, who can't possibly afford the cost of going through FDA approval, which can go well over $400,000, if not more. Uh, whereas a company like Philip Morris, who backed the law, uh, they're actually the only company who has ever gotten anything remotely like an e-cigarette through the process. It's the only product that's ever been approved. It coincidentally goes on sale this month in the United States. <laughs> so what, and what is that product? Uh, it's called uh, Iquos. And, and I'm not opposed to it. It's actually a really interesting product. It's a heat-not-burn device. So it uses real tobacco that's been specially treated, and it's a, a tiny little cigarette, essentially, that gets put in a device with a tiny blade, and the blade heats up and aerosol, aerosolizes the nicotine uh, so that it's, it's kind of like vaping, but it also tastes somewhat like a cigarette. It's a, it's a weird hybrid. Uh, it's been successful in other countries. Uh, it might be successful here. You know, my view is it, it deserves a, a spot in the market, yeah. uh, but I, I don't like the fact that at the same time, the law that Philip Morris backed is now being applied to wipe out the entire field of competition. Uh, so uh, one of your big themes in this book here is uh, l let's all calm down and think about this rationally. <laughs> uh, and 
you know, when you when you talk about an ideological opposition to tobacco, cigarettes, smoking, things that look like smoking, uh, also, um, you know, ha- how do we get from uh, where we are today to a world in which smokers, even the dreaded cigarette smoker, is viewed as uh, fully human. <laughs> <laughs> it's a challenge. Uh, and, and I think if you look at our trajectory now, we're not headed that way. Uh, we, we've had decades of research done, basically, and activism to stigmatize smokers, you know, starting with uh, demonizing secondhand smoke, which is not to say it's completely risk-free, but a lot of the risks were exaggerated. Uh, and then we banned smokers from restaurants, from bars, then we banned them from patios, then we banned them from parks and from beaches. College uh, campuses. College campuses. Entire sections of downtown cities are smoke-free now. Uh, and we've had proposals. Uh, we, we actually do now ban smoking in public housing. And there's even people proposing we ban smoking in privately owned homes. Uh, so there's, there's really no end to this. And uh, we've had the invention of things like uh, third-hand smoke, which is you know, the, the stuff you smell after someone's been smoking in the area and people saying how that makes smokers themselves actually toxic to be near. <laughs> and these stories get reported very, very widely. Uh, uh, Rashida Tlaib. Yes. The Democratic Congresswoman from Michigan. Uh, and you noted this in a piece that uh, popped up at Reason today. Um, I almost couldn't believe this when, this, when she said this, but it, her comment was essentially, we know or scientists are aware that secondhand smoke is worse for you than firsthand smoke. Yeah, worse than smoking, which is just completely absurd. I mean, there's, there's no possible scientific justification for that kind of statement. But in, in terms of a willingness to make use of shoddy science to uh, advance uh, an ideological pursuit, the fact that this happens with respect to tobacco shouldn't be surprising. No, it's in, I think people ignored it with secondhand smoke because if you were a non-smoker, which most people who come to an event like this or most people who are you know, educated and well-off are probably non-smokers at this point, it's very easy to ignore the bad science that was used to justify expelling smokers but now they're not equipped to be skeptical of the science that's being done against e-cigarettes and seeing when there's an ideological motivation to it and knowing when to question it. Uh, and so this time, as a result, we might be denying smokers a much safer product. So uh, what do you make of uh, proposals like Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, uh, my neighbor, <laughs> uh, who uh, wants to raise the age of uh, uh, being able to legally buy tobacco products? I'm kind of agnostic on it, to be honest. You know, as a libertarian, I hate the idea of telling adults what, what they can do. Um, but if you look at uh, alcohol, uh, we already do this. We license where you can buy liquor. We don't let anybody buy alcohol until they're 21. Uh, I question whether it's sustainable to treat alcohol and tobacco differently in that respect in the U.S. So I, I see that as perhaps one of the least bad options that might practically be implemented. Uh, So my focus is more on preserving the fact that adults, whatever age we define them at, do have an open market. And we start with the idea that whether you're 18 or 21, wherever you make the cutoff, you do have the right to make your own decisions about whether you have tobacco, whether you vape, whether it has flavors, whether it's cigarette or cigar, pipe, whatever. Uh, And that's what, to me, is under threat right now, most in the U.S. So we haven't even talked about flavors, really. And that's that's all wrapped up in in a lot of this uh, opposition to uh, vaping today is, 
and I think even the president has, has tweeted about uh, this fact, which is apparently, and it sounds made up, the figure sounds made up, that 90 plus percent of people who've quit smoking by using vaping products did so with flavors. And uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, I, I maybe have the, the proportion <laughs> wrong uh, exact, precisely, but it's a very large share of uh, former smokers who said, well, I just don't want anything that tastes like tobacco. Right. I want creme brulee or <laughs> Fruit Loops or whatever the uh, popular flavor is. And now the push is, well, we just got to get rid of these flavors. From an understandable perspective, perhaps, that these things may be attractive to uh, young people. Mm-hmm. And there's a common misperception that there is a, such a thing as an unflavored vape which in a sense there could be, but and the, there are, but tobacco-flavored vapor products are not flavored with tobacco. <laughs> when you take pure nicotine and put it in propylene glycol, you don't carry over the taste of a cigarette. So these unflavored or tobacco-flavored uh, vapor products that people talk about are it's essentially clumsy attempts to try to recreate the taste of tobacco using other flavors that sort of combine to do it. Uh, and I'm, I'm not a vapor myself, but from what I've heard, these are not very satisfying and two, like you said, uh, if you're trying to quit smoking, maybe one of the worst things for you is to be reminded of what a cigarette tastes like or to have a pale imitation of a cigarette that makes you want the real thing. And so and this really did come from the bottom up. This was not a, a plot by tobacco companies to get people hooked with candy flavors. The, the flavors came about from these very small vape shops and individuals buying food-grade flavorings and creating them themselves. So it started out as a very adult market. Uh, designed by people who are taking up vaping to quit smoking and finding what works for them. Is, what is the experience of other countries with respect to uh, tobacco and harm reduction? I know you mentioned uh, before we started recording SNUS. Right. Well, what is SNUS and where is it popular? So SNUS is a Scandinavian form of oral tobacco. Uh, it was originally popular in Sweden. Uh, starting in the 60s, really interesting thing happened there. Uh, where the dangers of smoking were publicized and uh, Swedish women tended to keep smoking cigarettes, but Swedish men took up this oral tobacco instead. And that went on for for decades. And now smoking among Swedish men is extremely low, some of the lowest in Europe. Uh, But tobacco use in the form of this oral tobacco called snus is actually very robust and high and embraced and publicly acceptable. Uh, Yet their smoking-related mortality is the lowest in, in Europe. So it's a far, far, far lower risk profile that shows that abstinence is not necessarily the best approach. You might be able to find a way to have people using nicotine or using tobacco in ways that don't kill them. Uh, But even that was accidental to some extent. It certainly was not the case of health authorities in Sweden encouraging the switch by any means. It sort of happened with benign neglect. Uh, And then even elsewhere, when um, Sweden joined the European Union, uh, they had to get a special exemption to be continued to allow snus there. Uh, but other Nordic countries have actually testified against allowing people to use snus in, in other parts of Europe, despite the success that they've had there. And it, it's a real divide in the public health community. We have some, some people in Sweden and Norway doing the research and saying, this has helped us have the lowest tobacco-related mortality in Europe, and others saying, no, we would have had that anyway, and now this is just here for no reason, <laughs> and, and hooking people on tobacco again. Uh, so pretty much everywhere in the world you have, I would say, benign neglect at the good end of the spectrum, 
and outright hostility <laughs> at the other end, Australia being a good example of that, where nicotine vaping is banned entirely. Uh, the one exception right now is England, and they are a huge exception uh, where you actually see uh, people in public health encouraging people to switch uh, to the extent of even opening up uh, vape shops in hospitals. I saw a sign posted online the other day from a hospital grounds that had a sign that said, no smoking, vaping permitted. Wow. So, yeah, and it's uh, impossible to imagine that here in the U.S. right now. That's right. I, can, I see have. a no smoking sign, and I just tend to believe it's implied that I can't vape in here. Yeah, and, and where I live in Portland, they almost always specify both at this point. But, yeah, <laughs> the, it, it's impossible to imagine with our perspective on public health actively encouraging that. So on the U.S. perspective on public health, uh, with specific respect to the FDA, mm-hmm. uh, where does harm reduction fit in with respect to tobacco? Because it doesn't seem like there is any real differentiation made among the various ways that people consume nicotine with a tobacco pro- with a, an explicitly tobacco-based product. Yeah, the, uh, the FDA started out uh, about two and a half years ago when Scott Gottlieb came in uh, somewhat optimistically that they might be much more tolerant of e-cigarettes. And they still are compared to, say, the CDC or other government agencies. Uh, but even then, uh, they took what I, what I would describe as a very central planning approach, uh, where the idea was that they are the experts looking down on the tobacco market for the entire United States, and they're going to look at smoking rates and vaping rates, and they're going to gradually ban some products and take them off the market and then allow others on. And they're going to have this perfectly executed plan that's going to eventually eliminate smoking and get everybody onto something safer. What I think we're seeing now with, with the current panic uh, is that that doesn't really work. It's one bad news cycle away from this entire plan, just going up in, in smoke, <laughs> we could say. And uh, now we're seeing bans everywhere. We're seeing people not know what's actually safer. Uh, and I, I think we're going to end up increasing cigarette sales after all of these summer, summer's laws are done. Uh, so I differentiate between liberal harm reduction and illiberal, illiberal harm reduction, where the latter is about restricting choices uh, and the former is more about having an open market and informing people and letting them make their own decision if they're going to smoke, vape, do something different. Uh, We have a question from Aaron Morris. Uh, He asks, does the rapid move to ban vaping products demonstrate that we could use regulation to do something about about much more dangerous tobacco products, but we choose not to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the FDA has the power right now to uh, restrict all kinds of things like menthol and cigarettes. Uh, They are proposing a plan to... uh, take nicotine down not quite to zero, but to almost zero in combustible tobacco. Uh, The FDA certainly has options. Uh, I don't necessarily think that they should be taking that approach. I prefer, you know, we've had decades of the stick approach of beating smokers into submission. Uh, Now that we have this option of a carrot, I'd rather see us focus on that and uh, expanding the range of choices. Uh, But the power is there, absolutely, if, if they wanted to. Jacob Greer is author of The Rediscovery of Tobacco, Smoking, Vaping, and the Creative Destruction of the Cigarette. Subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.